Hey, you're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about our church, you can visit ktnnaz.org. Visit us on Facebook, just search Ketchikan Naz, or you can download our free app from the iPhone store or the Google Play store. Just search Ketchikan Naz. Thanks for visiting. Hope the word of God speaks to you today. Um, I want to welcome the folks that are watching live via Periscope. We have a, a guy, a gentleman that's been joining us from the Netherlands for like four weeks. Uh, and uh, so I just think that's interesting. He's tuned in pretty much every single week. And we've tweeted back and forth to each other, just uh, greeting one another. Hi from the Netherlands. Hi from Alaska. It's interesting to me how technology spans the gap uh, and joins the church. And so uh, I don't know who's watching and from where, but welcome. And we're glad that you've joined us online this morning. We are in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 1 through 26. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to do what I did last week, and I'm going to summarize the first portion of the Scripture, and then read the second half for us this morning. Uh, so if you are finding Matthew, chapter 27, I'm going to pray, and then, uh, and then we'll dive into the Word of God. Lord, your Word is so awesome, because it comes from your heart to ours. This morning, as we read Scripture, I pray that we would see... Uh, your immense love for us and your desire for us to draw near to you in repentance and to be made holy. Lord, I pray that if there is a way in which we are not aligned with your word, when we realize it, we would immediately repent of it and turn to you. Lord, I pray if we are aligned with your word and chugging along with you in life, in faith, that you would encourage us to continue to do so. Open our hearts and our minds to your word this morning. Prohibit any distractions from the outside world from creeping in on our hearts and minds. So it's just you and us in this sacred space. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 through 26. And here's the summary of verses 1 through 10. We're going to find that it's um, it's the story of Judas. Oh, light. Let there be light. It's amazing. Uh, Okay, so uh, verses 1 through 10 kind of look this way. The priests at this point have sentenced Jesus to death. Remember, Jesus has just been on trial with the religious leaders of the day. And he has admitted, I am the son of God. And so they said, that's blasphemy. Because that's the definition of blasphemy, to claim if you're, you're God, if you're not. Well, he was, so it wasn't technically blasphemy. But they thought it was, and so they sentenced him to death. The thing is, religious authorities can't kill people. That would make church very awkward. And so they said, we need to take him to the Roman authorities who were the only ones that could execute. Now, the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities, they didn't really get along, right? But in this case, they had a mutual and common affinity for getting rid of Jesus. He was a troublemaker for the Jews, a troublemaker for Rome. So they joined bands together and they found a way to get rid of Jesus. So the priests handed Jesus over to the Roman authorities. Now Judas saw this happen because remember Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver was the price that you would pay to buy a slave. So basically this was a slave's wage uh, paid to a slave owner. He bought a slave. He bought Jesus, okay, into slavery. And Judas was watching this death sentence being pronounced, and afterwards he was, Scripture says, seized by remorse. And he went to the priests and he, he said, I've made a horrible mistake. 
Can we undo this? Here's the coins back. I want to buy Jesus back from slavery. And they said, too late. What's done cannot be undone. And Judas, being seized with grief, takes the 30 coins, walks into the temple, and throws the coins into the holy place. Walks out and hangs himself. The priests stood there, awkwardly debating what to do with that money, because it couldn't go back into the temple treasury. It was blood money. It paid for someone to be murdered. Although they didn't really have a problem taking it from the temple treasury to pay for someone to be murdered. They certainly weren't going to put it back. So instead they decided to buy a field to bury strangers in and they named it Potter's Field. None of this was out of God's hands. This was not something that was going on outside of the scope of the sovereignty of God. It did not surprise him. Okay, This event was prophesied generations before. That this would take place, this coins and the tossing of the coins and all of it, would take place and it would point to the Messiah. Um, Back in the day, there was a prophet named Jeremiah. He wrote a book. It's very good. You should read it at some point. And God told Jeremiah, I want you to go to the people in charge and I want you to put on a play, a one-man play, for the leaders of the nation. And basically, this play is going to aim to convict them of how they were not following God. So he put on this long play where basically he made a fool of himself in front of the nation leaders. Um, And there was a lot of talk about shepherds and how Jeremiah was playing a shepherd and how the shepherd would be struck and so forth and so on. There's some great analogy there. It's a beautiful play about the Messiah, okay? But at the end of the play, God told Jeremiah to say this. I'm going to quote from Zechariah. Jeremiah's story is found in Zechariah. Go figure, okay? So, in Zechariah 11, Jeremiah says this, Then I said, If it seems good to you, give me my wages. For, pay me for my play. I just did a play for you. Pay me, if it seems good to you. But if not, if I did not please you, keep your wages. And so they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw it into the house of the Lord. Jeremiah was told to act like the fool in front of the religious leaders, showing how foolish it was going to be one day when the Messiah was going to be betrayed for a slave's wage of 30 pieces of silver. Ultimately, Judas, overcome by grief, went out and hanged himself. And we pick up the story in chapter 27, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor. Remember, he's before the religious, uh, the uh, Roman authorities now. He stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But Jesus gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was really amazed. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing for the crowd any one prisoner for whom they wanted. And they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. 
So when they gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up, meaning Jesus. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. I've suffered much because of him in a dream, is what his wife said to him. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor said to them again, Which one of these two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, Then what should I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, he took a basin of water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. And the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. And then he released to them Barabbas, having scourged, flogged Jesus, delivering him to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord this morning. I want to go back and revisit this just a little bit for you. Jesus' messianic claim was questioned in a trial setting, not just with the religious leaders, but once again in front of the Roman leaders, Herod and Pilate, the most official Roman people there. These were high-ranking government officials with all the authority of the Roman legion behind them. Roman legal precedent in that day required a defendant on trial to have three opportunities to defend themselves before they could be called guilty by default, which is why we read in this passage he was asked three times, Do you have anything to say for yourself? Do you want to defend yourself? Do you want to say anything? Don't you know what they're saying against you? Do you want to speak up in your own defense? Three times he was asked that question. But three times he gave no defense of himself. And it's the same thing that happened in front of the high priest. Are you the Christ? I am. Then they brought witnesses against him. Do you want to defend yourself? Do you want to defend yourself? No. Jesus said nothing in his defense. He was questioned, but with little to no defense of himself, except that I am who you say I am. This was prophesied in Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, the full verse reads this way, Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, but he didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In Isaiah, it was prophesied that Jesus would be taken into captivity. He would be led like a sheep to the slaughter, but he would not open his mouth in his own defense. He would be silent. Any of you seen Chronicles of Narnia, the movie, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Okay. Okay. So um, there's this beautiful scene um, when Aslan has made a deal with the White Witch to uh, save Edmund's life. Remember, Edmund had gone astray and done all kinds of horrible things. And Aslan uh, said, I'll make a deal with you. I will die in Edmund's place. And so you see this picture of this great, beautiful lion who has been willingly taken captive by the white witch and bound. And there's this huge group of all the kinds of evil characters. I don't know what they're called. All the bad people, okay? 
and they're chanting and cheering and it's evil and it's dark and Aslan is strapped to the stone table and they're making fun of him and they're beating him and they're calling curses out upon him and they cut his mane off and he's silent the entire time. And that is where C.S. Lewis drew that image from, this passage where he was silent before the people who betrayed him. If you've not read the Chronicles of Narnia lately, it's a good one. You should read it. Um, okay, so back to the story. Isaiah 53, 7, okay? Silent before the people who betrayed him. Now, Pilate realized he was getting nowhere with the crowd because the crowd was getting whipped up into a frenzy and they didn't know who to release. And he decided, um, I'm, I'm already hated by the Jews because I'm a Roman authority. Um, I'm going to change my tactics at this point. He stated that he would grant the Jewish crowds the release of one prisoner on death row, but they could choose who. Here's Barabbas, okay? And here's the chains that have just been freed. And uh, he said, listen, I have developed a peacekeeping tactic. It was relatively new, this idea of releasing a prisoner. He was going to release a Jewish prisoner during the festival times, and it was an act of goodwill on behalf of the Roman government to say, I will release one of your Jewish prisoners regardless of what they have done so that we can have peace between Rome and Judaism during this time. It was up to the people. Who would they choose? Jesus the Christ? Barabbas. Now, according to Mark and Luke, Barabbas was in prison for murder, uh, for murder that he committed as part of an act of terrorism against Roman rule. He was a terrorist, okay? Um, Barabbas was a guy who sought to overthrow the Roman government, so he would, at any opportunity, try and kill Romans. Now, the Jews kind of liked that because they didn't like Roman authority. But the Romans didn't like that because, well, they had a death sentence on their head. So Pilate was in a very difficult place. He had two people up for release, if he himself, as judge in that moment, said, I'm going to give you Jesus, the crowds would have gone hog wild because they didn't want him. But if he released Barabbas, his Roman superiors were not going to be very happy with him. So instead of making a very difficult decision, he says, I'm going to step back from this. I'm going to let the crowd choose. Now, while that was going on, the priests and the Sadducees were inside the crowd wandering around yelling, crucify Jesus, murder Jesus, we want Barabbas. And the crowd got whipped up into this frenzy so that when Pilate said, who do you want? The crowd began to yell, we want Barabbas, crucify Jesus, give us Barabbas. And Pilate was like, are you sure? Jesus is kind of innocent. I don't see anything wrong with him. We want Barabbas. Give us the murderer. And it seems really weird. But because he didn't want to get in trouble with his superiors, but he didn't want to get in trouble with the crowd, he completely abdicated his authority and went with what the crowd wanted. And the crowd shouted, crucify him. And the crowd was so convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that they wanted Barabbas to be released and so convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was guilty and needed to be crucified 
that collectively as a people, as a nation, as Jews, they called out a curse upon themselves saying, we accept responsibility for his death. His blood will be on us and our children if he is innocent. Those are words you don't want to say. Meaning this, if they were wrong, they would bear the guilt of the death of an innocent man, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, they would bear his death, his blood on their heads. That's a weight they would carry. So Pilate washed his hands and said, I'll have nothing to do with this decision. And he stepped back and he released Barabbas to freedom and then publicly flogged Jesus without mercy. That is where our story ends today. I want to talk about it a little bit. I vacillated with this passage quite a bit. Where should I go and what should, what should be said? And there's so many angles one could take in this passage. And uh, I just didn't know what to do. Then last night, the Lord said, here's where I want you to go. And I was really thankful it was last night and not this morning. Uh, because I'm really glad that the Lord uh, laid something really on my heart last night. And it has to do with the verse... We accept responsibility for his death, and his blood will be on us and our children. But before we get there, let's do some background work. There's a lot that happens in this passage. So if we step back for just a brief moment and look at the whole picture of this story, we see one thing stand out to us. One story from ages ago down through today. One story from Adam and Eve to you and me. Sinners that are in need of salvation. Okay? And we see the range of sinners in this story. Pilate, he was backed into a corner, not quite sure how he got there, and he attempted to atone for his sins in the place that he had put himself by washing his hands of it himself. He'd made some choices that put him in a difficult place, and perhaps we can relate with that in our own life, where we have made choices and suddenly we realize, I don't know how I got here. And now I'm not exactly sure what to do, so I'm going to try and fix it the best I can. That's what Pilate had done. When there was Judas, he knew exactly how he got where he, he found himself. The problem is, all of his attempts to get out of it and undo it couldn't change anything. He was stuck with the consequences of his sin, and it overcame him. And then there's the crowd. They were willfully opposing Jesus at this point, demanding a murderer over a Messiah. They didn't care. They were just out there. This is how we're going to choose to live our life. And then there was Barabbas. And he was completely indifferent to Jesus. He didn't know Jesus from anybody. He'd been in jail for who knows how long. He didn't know Jesus left from right. He was just this other guy, this other criminal that just so happened to be taking his death. It was like, that guy gets to die for me. I'm out of here. Scripture gives us nothing about Barabbas after this story. We can only assume that he just went on to live life as he'd always lived life, as a terrorist against the Roman government, assuming he ended back in jail at some point. Four types of sinners, people who get backed into a corner, made choices, and oh no, not quite sure how I got here, I'm going to try and fix it. I know how I got here, but I can't work my way out of it. The crowd, I like where I am, and I'm willingly going to live here. This is the way I believe it should be. And Barabbas, I don't really care one iota about Jesus. I'm going to live the way I want to. What's he to me? Four types of sinners we see in this passage. 
And while the world was lost in sin, God was working out salvation, right? God was working out something for the sinners so that there would be a hope where hopelessness once was. And he gave us a picture of what this salvation was going to look like in the story of the prisoner exchange. Okay? The exchanged sinner, Barabbas, went free because Jesus stayed. So there was a swapping. Someone who was guilty got to go free, and someone who was innocent stayed in his place. Jesus paid the price by taking Barabbas' death in the most quick and the most literal sense. Barabbas was slated to be crucified. He was going to die in the few days. He was on death row. Nothing was going to change that except this moment where because God had willed it to crush Jesus, Jesus was the other prisoner. And the crowd said, we want Barabbas. Jesus will die in his place. So while Barabbas went on with his sinful life, free from chains, Jesus died for him. Does that sound like a verse that you guys know? While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person might think about it. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinning against him, Christ died for us. So what happened with Barabbas' life? He was freed from chains and went on to do his own life, his own sins. And while he was still sinning, Jesus died for him two days later. While Barabbas was sinning, Jesus died for him. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's in Romans. In his great love, Jesus stepped in between you and me, or in between you and the wrath of God is basically what it is. So wrath of God for sin, you are in the path of the wrath of God because of your sin, and Jesus said, I will exchange places with you. You will go free, and I will absorb everything the wrath of God will give out for sin. That's what happened for Barabbas, and that's what happens for us. A great exchange occur, occurs where we deserve that death. We are Barabbas in some sense. But we are sinners. We don't deserve freedom. But that God chose to give us freedom. And it's the greatest exchange that has ever occurred. The sinless for the sinner. The pure for the impure. The holy for the unholy. The righteous for the unrighteous. And the reason Jesus did it was to make you pure and holy and righteous. And we talked about that last week. That because of Jesus, you can live a holy life before God. But only because of the exchange. By offering his perfect life in place of yours, he purchased you back. He purchased your freedom. He purchased you from the bondage of sin. Yet, while we are sinners whom God has died for, has exchanged his life for, this needs to be stated over and over and over again, while Jesus has exchanged his life for ours, 
That fact changes absolutely nothing for you if you do not take that substitution as a personal one. Though that substitution was made, if you do not receive it as yours, it does not change your life or your eternal destiny. You must recognize personally that Jesus substituted himself for you to die in your place for your sins on your cross. And until you do that, nothing changes about your life. And you're like Barabbas who just goes off and doesn't recognize the depth of that substitution. The crowd cried this out to Pilate. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. His blood be on us and our children. Those are murderous words. Those are... um, Those are words that say, we accept the death of this man. We proclaim this man is guilty. We take responsibility for the flogging and the beating and the nails in his hands and feet and the blood he is going to bleed and his last breath and the last beat of his heart. We want it. We long for it. We will enjoy it. That's what those words mean. Let his blood be on us, was their rally cry. Let it be on us, and let that settle for just just a moment in your minds. Let his blood be on us. Let the blood, let the death, the, the horrible, painful, unrighteous death of the Messiah be on you. Let the blood of the living God be on you. Let the guilt of the death of Jesus be on you. And that's what they cried in the hardness of their hearts that day. And that's what we cry when we live life in sin. When we sin and choose a life like that, that we don't say these words with our voices or with our actions. With our heart we are crying out, He's not my Messiah. I don't see Him as Christ. He's not my God. I don't have to listen to Him. He makes my life more difficult. Give me Barabbas. Give me my sin. I want Him, not Him. The blood of Jesus be on us. We don't think about sin like that, though, do we? I mean, we live the life we live and we do the things we do, but do we think that that's what our sin really is? Crying out for the death of Jesus? Because that's what it is when we sin. We join our voices with that crowd and say, His blood be on us, because I'd, I'd rather have my way than His way. His way makes me angry. It gets in the way of the way I want to live. Give me Barabbas. Yet God, in his rich mercy and his slowness to anger and his desire not to have anyone perish, used that same blood that was called out for in a horrible way to cleanse the sins of those people who cried out for it. Ah, that's so much better than I would ever do if someone wronged me. (laughs) Yet Jesus, in his great sovereign wonderful, holy, amazing awesomeness, said, though they are crying out for my blood in all of the wrong ways, I will use that blood to atone for their sins. Um, 
It's the great exchange. It's Barabbas. It's us. It's me. It's you. We call for his death with our sin, but his death calls us to life. In 1 Timothy, it says this. Pay attention to that word. He gave his life to ransom us. And to ransom means to purchase freedom. He gave his life to ransom us, to purchase freedom for everyone, is what Scripture says. And this is what God did for the world at just the right time. That is a great Scripture verse. He gave his life to ransom us, to purchase freedom for everyone. And it's what God did for the entire world at just the right time. The word ransom in this passage is the word which means a payment to release someone from a type of bondage. A payment to release someone from a type of bondage. Specifically, those who were prisoners of war, those who were in slavery or those who were in debt that was too great they couldn't pay back. So here's what this verse means. That Jesus ransomed you. You are no longer subject to the devil in spiritual battles. No longer does sin have a hold over you. You are no longer enslaved to the habits that you once had. The debt of the sin that you racked up against God, that you can never pay back, no matter how many times you wash your hands in the basin of self-atonement, God wiped it out and ransomed you from all of that. And it's all been paid 100% in full for the sins you've done, are doing, and will do through Jesus' blood, the very blood that they cried out for. And so this ransom is the great exchange And in fancy theological terms, it's called substitutionary atonement. It's the word, the phrase that means Jesus substituted himself. He took your place so that he could atone, i.e. make peace between you and God. He was the only one who could wash you clean. And when we recognize this, and only when we recognize this, Does our cry change from the sinful, defiant, prideful cry of let his blood be upon us to a desperate, passionate, thankful cry of let his blood be upon me. Let his blood wash me clean. Because we know that our lives depend on that blood. We know that our hope depends on that blood And we want it to cover us and wash us clean. And we cry out, let your blood be on me. Let your blood cover me. But we rejoice because it's through his wounds that we find healing. And it's through his blood and his stripes that we are healed from sin and made free. Right? It's a totally different kind of cry than this. But it's the same words. And it changes It changes from um, a defiant cry to a desperate cry. Let his blood be upon us. I want to read a passage of scripture and then I'll pray and close. Isaiah 53. A prophecy about the time that Jesus would die for our sins in exchange for us. Isaiah 53 verses 3 through 11 
He was despised and rejected by men. This is Jesus. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we thought nothing of him. But surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. But we esteemed him stricken, smited by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our sins. He was crushed because we sinned. And upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Because all we like sheep have gone astray. Every single one of us has turned to our own way, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity, the sins of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he didn't open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent. He didn't open his mouth. But oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he'd done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus was perfect. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him and he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin... He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus substituted himself for you, endured horrible things in your place, the greatest and most costly exchange, a spotless lamb for our sinful life. But the exchange is only applicable if you say, I want that exchange for my life. And that's something that we must wrestle with. I'll close in prayer and we'll worship. Lord, May your blood be upon us today, washing us clean and making us pure and holy, forgiving all of our sins, restoring us to righteousness with you. May your shed blood cause healing in our hearts and our minds and our bodies and our families and our relationships as we seek you as Messiah. May we always proclaim your saving power over death and sin. And may your spirit always, always be present with us as we walk after you in truth. Jesus, you are the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. To you be the glory and the honor and the power and the dominion forever and ever, and ever, and ever, in our lives, in this world, in our church, in our families. We pray this in your name. Amen.